Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of us gathered here in worship. I want to encourage you, please, if you have your Bibles, to find your place in John chapter 2. The second chapter of the Gospel of John, in just a few moments, we're going to find our way there to that place in Scripture. But on the way there, let me take just a moment and let you know, we have some special friends worshiping with us today in in the traditional service. Uh, They are members of the youth group at Congregation Dor Tamid, one of the synagogues here in Johns Creek where my good buddy, Rabbi Jordan, is the rabbi. And I just want you to take a moment, if you will. Would you give these students a warm JCBC welcome? In fact, I think we ought to mess with Rabbi Jordan a little bit. Like, I think somebody should text him, like in the service, and say that like five of you have already converted. Just mess with him. Just say, we've converted and we're giving our membership dues over to JCBC, you know. No, think about it, all right. No kidding though, I I, I wanna say on behalf of all of our sisters and brothers here, how grateful I am that you're here with us and actually how proud I am of you. You know, it, it takes a certain kind of congregational courage to say we want our students to be grounded in our faith, but see what is being done in the neighborhood around this world that we're called to love. That takes a certain kind of confidence that I dig and I appreciate. And I I just want to say you are uh, an inspiration to us. We're grateful that you're here. Hope you make yourself welcome. But listen, you found kind of an interesting day to come because the series is about losing my religion So maybe I should unpack that a little bit. So these past several weeks, we've been paying very close attention to some very reliable data that is coming to us from experts who study us, us religious folks. And whether it comes from Gallup or Pew or the Public Religion Research Institute or Barna, these very reliable sources are telling us that people are leaving religion walking away from church in droves and over the last few decades in and disturbing numbers at disturbing rates walking away from religion but as we pay close attention to what the data is telling us one data point is this while people may be walking away at rates they never have before they're not necessarily walking away from faith But there is still a deep God-given hunger and thirst for transcendence, for an encounter with the holy, for spiritual inspiration, fulfillment, transformation, for a sense of community where you feel like you can belong with somebody. 
And that data point is what's driving this preacher in this series, The Whole Way Home. Because that fills me with such hope. Because if it's true that God is still at work in the hearts of people, giving them a hunger and a thirst for something of God, that means we can be a part of that journey. So what we're doing these several weeks is we're taking some of the the trends and the patterns that we're seeing emerge from the data because they begin to repeat and they echo and they overlap and there's a kind of theme to some of the reasons people say they're walking away. So we're holding up that information right alongside sacred scripture and we're, we're asking God in a posture of humility, what do we do? What is it that must change in us? How must we all repent to change our thinking, to change our ways so that we are part of what you are up to in a hungry and thirsty world? Now, if you missed the very first part in this series on January the 1st, I pray that you will go and watch it. It's very important as I lay out a lot of very important information that lays the groundwork for this series. But then the next week we came back and we talked about Generation Z a little bit. We talked about how we're, we're told by those who are suspicious and walking away from church that in their experience, sometimes church can be seen as too overprotective, too safe, too easy, too simplistic for a world that is way more complex and diverse and beautiful. And we've been at times guilty of being suspicious of everything outside these walls when those who are in Generation Z and the millennials are saying those places outside these walls are actually compelling to us. The art, the music, the beauty inherent in this world. So if you're going to be so suspicious about everything out there that is so compelling to me, well, then I'm out. And we talked about what it might look like to become a church that has the courage to incarnate, to be made flesh in the world, to walk alongside Christ as his body in the world, loving the world. Last week, we came back for part number three, and we talked about how some are leaving and have left because in their experience, right or wrong, good or bad, they have experienced that in the church, we've all too often been on the wrong side of history, that we have been at times for the very things that Jesus would have been against, and we've been against some of the things that we know Jesus would have been for, and I called us last week to consider the reality that maybe it's time for the church of Christ to start getting better at recognizing it in real time. And today, I want to follow another trend that we find in the data, in the information of those who are studying us. Because there are some who walk away, according to the Public Religion Research Institute, because they no longer believe in the teachings of their religion as children. And some say the reason they no longer believe is because the belief that they were given is now in conflict with an experience that they are living and they were never given the room to question or to doubt or to struggle or to grapple with it. And so if my choice is between what I've been told and what I see from my own self, my own eyes, well, then I will walk away so that I can be intellectually honest about my life and what I see. So today, I want to talk for just a moment or two about 
What happens when my religion makes no room for questions or doubt? What happens when your religion makes no room for questions and doubt? And the reason I want to talk about that today is because I guarantee you, I promise you, there is somebody in this room or in the Family Life Center who may be engaging online as well, and you're barely hanging on by a very thin thread because you too are caught in this kind of crucible and everything that you've been told about a thing, an issue, an experience, a problem, a people, doesn't seem to jive with what you're seeing for yourself. And you don't know if you can hang around long enough to work it out. And maybe it's not you, but someone you love because your child or your grandchild or your nephew, your niece has walked away and you know they have some serious questions that no one has given them permission to ask. So we're going to talk about that for just a moment. But I want to give you a couple of handles to hold on to as we make our ride on our journey through this sermon today. So in order to talk about what happens when our religion is, makes no room for questions or doubt, we've got to talk about three things. First, I've got to tell you about my first dinner with Laura's parents. Lord. Then I've got to talk to you a little bit about... What am I going to talk to him next about? Uh, the art and anguish of deconstruction. See, he's not a machine. He's a man. We're going to talk about my first dinner with Laura's parents. Then we're going to talk about the art and anguish of deconstruction. And then we're going to talk about the thing that comes after. My first dinner with Laura's parents, the art and anguish of deconstruction, and the thing that comes after. First, my first dinner with Laura's parents. Now, most of you know because we've been hanging out a little while now. We've been together a decade, and as such, I've told you a little bit about my childhood and how I came into faith and how we didn't go to church as a family much, hardly at all, as a child or growing up. We went together for about a year. And my encounter with Christ, the holy presence of God on earth, was through the experience of some suffering and some uncertainty and fear and difficulty through hospital waiting rooms and so on. I told you about that back in December as a small, small child. But then when we did go, something woke up inside me. And there was a kind of provoking of a, a curiosity. A deep, God-given curiosity about the things of the universe and the maker of the universe and why things are the way they are and how things move the way they move and what is God. And that curiosity made me find rides to church with friends who could drive until I could old enough, until I was old enough to drive myself and I would go. And I found myself in a youth group that was good for me. We were very close friends and we took faith very seriously. But looking back on it, I realized it was a very, very conservative youth group and a very conservative church. And there was a lot of talk about what's right and wrong, black and white, no room for gray. Here's the holy and here's the unholy of your life. You better choose wisely, you know. And, you know, sometimes that's okay. Some of us teenagers needed a little bit of guard railing, right? Yeah. 
But as I moved through my teenage years and moved on into college, at Carson Newman College, I met individuals who became game changers for me, the most wonderful human beings in the religion department at Carson Newman College in the early 90s who, who gave me the most powerful tool you could give anyone on a spiritual journey, the power of the question, why? It's okay to have some things you believe. That's fine. You come to school with some of those things, but you got to know why. Why do you believe as you believe? Why do you hold with such conviction that which you hold with conviction? And so I asked why a lot. And that God-given curiosity was stoked and provoked and evoked in classrooms and outside of classrooms to the point that I declared a religion major, moved on to seminary, and I was choosing a seminary filled with the same kind of curiosity. And the professors who who made up that seminary in Richmond, Virginia, Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond, were people who were good at asking why. In fact, they were so good at asking why, they got fired at other churches for other places for not ask, for asking why too much. So as Baptist exiles and refugees, they gathered and created a seminary where it was healthy to ask, why do I believe that which I believe? Now, back to Laura's parents. So as we're dating, I fall head over heels in love with this woman. I mean, I was just crazy about her. I was smitten, Diane. I was smitten with the girl. I was ruined. And so it's time to get to know her parents, who this day I revere and worship like, like uh, gods on earth. They are wonderful people. But our first encounters were interesting. They liked me in the beginning. What's not to like? Come on. I can be charming if I want to be. And I was. Plus, I'm going to be a preacher. So what? You know. So we met, got to know each other. Things were going well. It was time to make a visit to Laura's home church where she grew up. Laura grew up in an independent Baptist church. Do you know what an independent Baptist church is? All right. So for my Jewish friends who are in the room, let me just tell you. An independent Baptist church makes conservative Southern Baptists look like flaming liberals. Let's just put it that way. I mean, rigid, legalistic. And so I went to go to the church and I met the pastor and met the pastor's sweet man. This is Sean, Laura's boyfriend. Oh, nice to meet you, Sean. He's going to go to seminary. Oh, really? Where, where, are, you going, where are you going to seminary, Sean? Which one are you going to? I said, well, it's in Richmond. It's called Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond. All of the blood left his face. He looked at me like I was the spawn of Satan. He said, oh, we stopped shaking hands. And I can't be sure. I think he may have, you know, I, I don't, you know, sent, you know, I don't know. I can't be, I may be making that up. I don't know. It's unclear. And the next week I was invited to dinner at Laura's house. Dinner was great. Laura comes from a family of great cooks. Dinner was great until I realized I was dessert. We retired to the couch where we sat and out came a piece of paper with questions written on it that had come from their pastor. Yeah, feel that a minute, will you? And I answered every question. 
What do you think about the Bible? Is it inerrant? Is it infallible? Is it the word of God or the word about God? What do you think about the virgin birth? Do you believe in it? Yes or no? What do you think about homosexuality? How about abortion? Capital punishment. I mean, the list went on and on and on. We're there for a while. I call it the Baptist Inquisition. Some of the answers pleased them. Some did not. And there began a journey, like many of you may have experienced in your own families of origin, a journey of learning to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Amen? Because we found one thing in common. We were head over heels in love with one particular person. And that was all that really mattered. Still is. But in that room, something happened that later I would come to grips with what to name. How to describe the conversation that was happening in the room. And the best way I can think of it is to describe it this way. Inherited faith versus owned faith. Everybody inherits some kind of faith. We, we try to hand down to our kids. Here's what we believe. Here's why we read the scriptures. Here's why we memorize particular verses. Here are the major doctrines and beliefs of our, of our religion. And we hand them down to our kids so that when they grow, they do not depart from it, right? That's inherited faith. But in order for your faith to actually become your own faith, you have to ask why. And some never ask why. They live a whole life with only inherited faith, believing that they are somehow keeping vigil over what faith is supposed to look like. Never question, never doubt it, never examine it, never lift up the rock to look underneath it, but instead never explore where the God-given curiosity in you takes you. But if you begin to explore and look under every rock, you begin to realize there's some things that are really mine. And we want our children to grow up with an owned faith, a faith that belongs to them, one that they have tested and tried and come out on the other side embracing. But that comes with risk because sometimes it comes with discomfort. It feels like a, like a threat. It feels like we have to be on the defense and it worries parents and grandparents and it makes churches nervous. And I'd probably say it makes a few synagogues nervous too. Because if they question what we teach them, then what are we going to do if they change their mind on things? But this is what I believe Paul was after when Paul said in Philippians, continue to work out your salvation. In fear and trembling, work it out, turn it over, wrestle with it, struggle with it. Grab onto it like old Jacob who refused to let go until he walks away with a limp and a blessing. Yeah? So that leads us from my first dinner with Laura's parents to the art and anguish of deconstruction. Now, deconstruction is a word that's become popular lately. It's kind of fad. It's kind of being used a lot lately, mainly to refer to the experience of pulling apart parts of the faith that we have carried around to ask, does this really still belong to me? Right now, it's on the rise because so many in our evangelical family are beginning to deconstruct some of the things, some of the baggage that they thought had to come along with faith in order to believe in Christ. And realizing now, maybe I don't have to think this way or believe this way or, or vote this way or yoke my, my, my team to this wagon. Maybe following Jesus is simply about following Jesus. And so the deconstruction word 
Well, it comes from French philosopher Jacques Derrida. Derrida talked about the reality that if we're going to talk about any meaning in life, we have to understand that every word we use has a particular meaning. And you've got to get underneath the word and ask, what does this word mean? Well, if you're going to talk about anything that has any substance or value, you've got to understand what are the words I'm using to describe it. Because it matters, we talk about words in different ways, in different cultures. It matters, for example, that I view and do the world as a white, straight, male, married, with children, oozing with charm, (laughs) and radiant charisma. It matters because the lens through which we see shapes what we see, right? Deconstruction at the very basic level is simply pulling apart the things that we have said we believe in order to ask ourselves, now do I really believe these things? One of the best definitions sounds like this. Deconstruction is the process of taking apart and examining an idea, tradition, practice, or belief to determine its truthfulness, usefulness, and impact. Here's a little bit of what it looks like. Back in 04, I think, when Hurricane Katrina came and devastated the, 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 the coast, uh, the Gulf Coast, the church where I was serving, we, we, we went down together as a team in some of the repair, the reconstruction. And what we did, we served as a mud out group. When you go down to mud out somebody's house, essentially you're going because floods up to eight and nine feet in their homes destroyed everything they had and you have to carry all their stuff their lifetime belongings out and put it on the street for collection. And then you go back in with the sledgehammers and you tear down walls. You tear down the drywall. You pull down the fans. You knock out the windows. You tear the place down to the foundation and to the studs so that the insurance adjusters can come and examine, is there anything here worth keeping? Can anything be rebuilt upon what is left? Deconstruction is simply the honest experience of going through life with a certain assumption about things, belief about things, a religious um, orientation about things, and then a storm comes. And the rain falls, and the winds blow, and the, the waters rise, and you have to dismantle. Part. So you go through life and you believe, if I just pray hard enough, then God will answer my prayer or if I just believe with enough faith then the person I love will stay healthy and then you're taught to believe that and then suddenly the person you love has cancer and dies and part of what you brought with you to the storm has to be dismantled to see is there anything left in what I call faith that I can build upon that is deconstruction The late writer, author, blogger, thought leader, an amazing human being, Rachel Held Evans, described it this way. Deconstruction is a massive inventory of faith, tearing every doctrine from the cupboard and turning each one over in your hand. The problem is it can look like a lack of faith. It can it can look as if, well, there's another one. He's, he's kind of become a prodigal. He's, he's not believing the way he used to believe. It can look and feel like a loss. It can look like a lack of faith. But I'm here to tell you, my brothers and sisters, 
questioning and doubting is not a lack of faith, it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It's an act of faith because what you're doing when you question and when you tear it apart is you're actually saying, I have faith that there is something underneath all this that can stand. And I'm going to pick it apart because my confidence is in something more firm than, than that which is decorated around the outside. I'm going to tear it all down and see what remains. And beloved, if I can just tell you, this is simply the way of the universe. The universal pattern on which all the cosmos is created is based on this construction, deconstruction, reconstruction model. I mean, that's how you, I'm going to construct a life, a faith, a belief, and something's going to happen to make it fall apart, crash down, break open, and then I'll have something to build upon. And this pattern, construct, deconstruct, reconstruct, is crammed within every page of the Bible, in sweeping themes throughout the Bible from the beginning to the very end. Watch this. The Garden of Eden. The fall. Paradise. Egypt. Wilderness. Promised land. The great... Hebrew Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann said that the book of Psalms, the entire Psalter, is made up of three kinds of Psalms. Psalms of orientation. Psalms of disorientation. Psalms of reorientation. You'll remember from my sermon series in the book of Job that I said his whole life is a parable to your life and mine. He had everything, lost everything, and God rebuilt his life. The, the entire book is about order disorder, reorder. And this is the Easter mystery itself. When we talk about resurrection, in fact, my sisters and brothers from Dor Tamid, when you hear us talking about resurrection, this is what, what, what we mean. This is all we mean. That we believe that in Jesus was the Christ of God, right? He lived and he showed the way and he was crucified. He lost everything. He was incomplete deconstruction he he was crucified at the hands of an empire and because of god's relentless love he raised him to new life which gives salvation to all humankind and the very thing that happened in jesus god wants to happen in us we are given life but we have to fall and break there has to be a a breaking of the of the the will of the ego a, a death to the patterns of life that, that rob us of life, there has to be a dying, a disorientation, a deconstruction that eventually results in God raising us up to walk in newness of life. This is what Jesus taught the whole time. Everywhere Jesus went, he taught this. His very first sermon, his, his first message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In the New Testament, the word for repent in Greek is metanoia, which literally means change. Change your mind. You think the kingdom is something you're waiting for. I say, <laughs> change your mind about it. It's already here. And he say things in the Sermon on the Mount like, you know what? You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, part of what you believe needs to be deconstructed so that you can see I'm calling you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus 
is the one who said, look, I can have a seed in my hand. And if it remains in my hand, well, it's just a seed. But if I let that seed fall into deconstruction mode and it dies, then it could grow and flower into the resurrection of a new thing. This is why Nicodemus, one of the greatest scholars of the first century, a member of the Sanhedrin, had all kinds of learning in him, but his encounter with Jesus is, this doesn't make sense because I've brought to this moment all of this learning. The structure of my religious orientation has been intact for years, and now I'm meeting you, and my experience with you is calling everything into question. What must I do? And Jesus said, well, you must be born again. He's like, I don't get that. Take the... Jesus out of your mouth and speak to me clearly. And he says, you have to be born from above. You have all this learning, but there must become an unlearning in you so that you can then relearn what God is doing in you right now. He's walking through Jerusalem one day and he looks up at the, at the temple and the disciples are like, look at these gorgeous buildings. And he's like, yeah, beautiful. But I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. It'll come down. It can come down. It will come down. It always comes down. Every infrastructure that we build to host our confidences must come down until we realize our only confidence is in the one who can raise us. So in John chapter 2, we come to this. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. A after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. He takes the most beautiful central image of the authority of the religious confidence of the day and says, take that which you are most confident in and recognize it can come down and I will raise something more glorious than you could possibly imagine. And that's true about every temple that we create. Every temple you and I create that is to host our confidence can come down because in the coming down, we're now in a posture where he can raise us up. Beloved, don't be afraid when you have a loved one questioning everything that you ever taught them. Don't let it trouble your hearts. I know where it's coming from, but the truth is God does God's best work when it all comes down. It's not in Egypt that God did God's best work. It's not in the promised land. It's in the wilderness. Always in the wilderness, I think there was a line earlier, Jessica saying it, what if the wilderness is the plan? What if the wilderness is the plan? Well, I'm getting so excited, I'm just going to forget what I'm telling you here, I see. Oh, 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 this is the art and the anguish of deconstruction. Because it can feel to parents like maybe I have failed. Maybe I didn't teach them well. It can feel to grandparents, what is happening to my family? My kids don't even go to church anymore. But what if what's happening is God is speaking to them in ways that bring them to a place of curiosity that they may discover God in ways we could never spoon feed them. So that leads us from 
the art and anguish of deconstruction to the thing that comes after. The thing that comes after. So in 1995, April 19th, 1995, a man by the name of MacArthur Wheeler robbed a bank. He did. And he robbed a bank with lemon juice smeared all over his face. Because he read, and it's true, that lemon juice is an invisible ink. You can write something in lemon juice, heat it up, and you can read it. It's wonderful. It's a great experiment, you know? So he thought if he smeared his face in lemon juice, it would keep his face invisible from the cameras. <laughs> True story. They aired the story at 11 p.m. Shortly after midnight, they had him in custody. Yeah. It's possible. Oh, my. It's possible to be extremely confident in something you know very little about. Yeah. This led two psychologists by the names of David Dunning and Justin Kruger to study this man, and not only this man, but several others. And they found some interesting research data resulted in, in, their, in their studies. I want you to think of it like this. Think of like an axis, where on the vertical axis, the vertical axis is going to measure, let's say, your confidence in a thing. And the horizontal axis measures your competence, your knowledge of a certain thing. They said the, the less you know about a thing, the higher your confidence is in that thing. They put it in a form of a graph called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's here on your screen. I think it's on your screen. Yeah, there it is. And on the, you, I know I've got bad eyes, that's why I printed out my, my own. If you can't read what's, what it's saying, this first dot here is someone who knows very little about a thing, but is very confident. And the attitude is, I know everything about this. I remember when I first started martial arts years and years ago, the most confident people in the place were the white belts. Brand new uniform, brand new belt, they thought they were Bruce Lee. The less they know the greater the confidence. But with time, you know more, but as you know more, you realize, oh, maybe I don't know everything. And, and so it's summed up by the attitude, mm, it's more complicated than I thought. So your confidence goes down with the more that you know. And then ultimately, the confidence goes really down. The further you study, you realize, I'll never understand this. Represented right there by that dot. This is where a lot of folks just kind of check out. I'm out. I, I can't possibly understand this. So I'm just going to go back to uh, believing very little so I can be very confident. But Dunning-Kruger says if you continue in your knowledge, you continue in your competence in a thing, suddenly, curiously, you begin to rise in confidence, but not like before. Not as if, hey, I know everything about this, but rather, because I don't know everything about this, my confidence is up because I don't have to know everything about this. And therefore, it's summed up by the final statement there, uh, trust me, it's complicated. And the same happens in faith. Have you ever noticed that those who are the most confident, sometimes the most arrogant, cocky, religious people, are the ones who know very little about what they're talking about. The ones who defend the Bible with as much passion and yet, have you even read it? 
And as you continue to read it, you recognize it's not just words on a page. God didn't drop this thing out of the heavens onto King James's lap. It, it, it's thousands of years of development, complexity, communities agreeing upon which is valid and which is not valid until it comes into the final form that you and I have it. And the more we learn in our competence of understanding the history of the Bible, the lower our confidence is at first. Oh my gosh, I'll never learn everything there is to be known about it. But in time, if you keep going, you recognize I will not ever learn everything there is to be known about God. So therefore I am confident because I don't have to know everything there is to be known about God. You see what I'm talking about? And the truth is there is something on the other side. The trouble though is, um, let's put that graphic back up if we can for just a moment. When most of us on the spiritual journey end up right here, where we learn just enough to realize, oh gosh, it's too complex. That's where some of us jump off the train because we go through life with a sense of, oh, this is the faith that my church gave me. These are the beliefs that I was told to hold on to with both hands. And, and yet now I'm confronted by the complexity of a life that is so much bigger that they don't seem to fit. They say, and I'm gonna have to make a choice. I'm either going to have to stop learning and stop living and just go back to where it was simple. Go back to where I was really confident in a few things. I'm either gonna to have to do that or I'm gonna to have to leave my religion altogether in order to maintain an intellectual honesty about being a human. And this is why they're leaving. Because they haven't found communities of faith courageous enough to stay and to say, stay around. Stay here and bring your questions and bring your doubts, not necessarily for us to give you easy answers, quips that you can put on a bumper sticker, but so that here you will find a safe space to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. What if we became a church that was known as a safe place to question and doubt? So that when every one of us gets to that point on the curve, where everything that we've been taught now is in confrontation with everything that we're seeing, we find a space to work it out, to pull it apart, to look underneath it, to be in dialogue with it, so that on the other side, we come out with a confidence that has humility, a confidence that allows me to say, man, this is better than I thought it was. So what is it that's on the other side? What is the thing on the other side of all this? A faith that is more alive than ever before. Beloved, that is possible for the, the, the thousands of, of, of neighbors who are walking away from faith. What if they knew that it's possible to bring their intellectual honesty and their curiosities and their doubts to this place where they won't be judged, they won't be condemned? That means we become grace-centered, and patient with people. And it will require of us at least three of the seven core values that we say are important here. It will require theological depth and diversity, where we refuse to, to splash around in the shallow waters of faith, but we drag people on out and make sure we're asking questions when they are third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth, so that when they get to college and their roommate is losing their mind because they've never heard these kind of questions before, our students will say, oh, that's nothing new. I learned that at JCBC Sunday school. Theological depth 
and diversity. It'll also require something else. It'll require authentic Christian community. Do you know that it's possible to have Christian community and not be authentic? You wouldn't know anything about that, would you? It's possible to be gathered together and assume that we have to neatly dress up all of our brokenness, our curiosities, our fears and doubts, but to be authentic Christian community. It means that we we grow a thick skin and we're able to abide with one another when we hear things in Sunday school or in the pulpit that make us squirm a little bit because we are all working out our salvation in fear and trembling. And the last thing it'll require of us is congregational courage. This church has more courage than any that I've ever been a part of, but it will require the courage to not be defensive, to not be threatened, to recognize that the only way you defend God is like you defend a roaring lion. You just get out of the way. And we allow those with serious questions about serious issues in life to work them out at church. Sometimes you gotta lose a little religion to find a real faith. Amen. Well, I guess I better quit. But maybe you're hearing some of this and you know, you've been longing for some company because I'm describing you. And if I'm not describing you, maybe I'm describing somebody that you love. And maybe you come to a place today where you recognize I have been invited into a relationship with the king of the universe and I have never prayed that that would be real for me. I've never prayed to receive Christ as my savior. And maybe you don't even know how to pray as you might. That's why every Sunday we do it this way. I, I give you words to borrow until you find your own and sitting right where you are, you can pray a prayer from your heart that says, look, I recognize God. I, I am nothing without you. In fact, worse than that, I'm a mess without you. But I recognize you do your best work in the mess, in the wilderness. So I invite you, God, into the wilderness of my heart to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me of all the ways that I make a mess of life and, and, and I will follow you today and, and, and every day, I will follow you. If I don't have to have it all wrapped up, if I don't have to have it all worked out, but I can bring you my, my messy questions, my, my curiosity, my doubts, then I am yours. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.